Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And tomorrow... Friday, the 18th of November, 9am, is the general sale for tickets to our Christmas live show at the Royal Albert Hall on Tuesday, the 13th of December. As usual, I'm afraid these tickets can go very fast, so do please sign up quickly. The link for the tickets is in the description of this podcast, and we'll also tweet it from the Rest is Politics Twitter account at 9am tomorrow morning, Friday, 18th November. Right then, what's the first question, Alice? The first question, Rory, is do you think that we can fill the Albert Hall? I'm, I'm panicking already. <laughs> I, I'm panicking a little bit too. We may have overreached ourselves. We had a moment where we thought we could do Wembley Stadium and, and now we're thinking this is going to be a bit embarrassing. It'll just be my, my mother and your, your son sitting in the is audience. Your, is, is your mother coming? Yeah, she'll definitely come down, and I hope your Rory will be there, so at least we'll have two people. Can't she bring a bus down from Creef or something she like that? She can definitely bring a bus down from Creef. I think it's a good idea. Yeah. Now, first question. We sort of touched on this yesterday, but given that it was a question from one of our wonderful listeners, Shannon Kyle, if Truss and Quateng's economic policies cause £30 billion worth of the current black hole in finances, shouldn't there be a charge of misconduct in public office? What does someone have to do in order for this charge to be brought, or is it now meaningless? <laughs> well, certainly you can't be you can't can't be sent to jail for for, for economic mismanagement. Um, and and I guess if one was going to be cheeky, which obviously I would never be, um, I think let, let me just put it on the record. I think Liz Truss and Quasi Courting's decision were absolutely catastrophically disastrous, and Gordon Brown was a much more responsible chancellor than they were, but. If you were a Tory, you might point out that Gordon Brown's sale of the gold reserves probably lost the country about nine billion pounds too, and nobody's suggesting that should send him to jail. Right. So if we're now we're now into economic tennis. I I will hit back <laughs> the debt losses under Rishi Sunak, yeah. and I think I might with Hancock's eating his worms and his rats and whatever else he's doing in the jungle. I might throw back a bit of sort of multi-billion pound uh, <laughs> PPE fraud. So yeah, okay, that's your answer, Shannon. That's your answer. That's your answer. So, Lisa Hinton, pretty straightforward. Can the UK government do anything to deter Iran from carrying out mass executions? Something we touched on Iran in the, in the last pod, but I suppose let's try and tempt you into thinking more about the question of how much influence the world can have on human rights. And one of the things that I'm a bit gloomy about, I guess, and I think the world has changed a lot since the 90s and 2000s, is that liberal values, democracy, human rights, even openness to immigration, which we used to see as universal and which our governments and our people were happy to talk about more broadly, now seem to have become more insular, more contained mm. in a single country, and people are mm. much more reluctant to speak out. So do you think there is much the UK government can do to deter something like Iran from carrying out mass executions? UK on its own, very little. UK as part of broader international partnership, and we talked yesterday about the UK and the EU putting new sanctions on in relation to the, the Iranian response. But I think we've got this, we're back to our, one of our regular points about the, the dividing line between democracies and the dictatorships. I don't think they really feel that heat without China indicating something other than support. I think we've seen the same with, with Putin. I think although President Xi has been 
was fairly measured and balanced in his meeting with Biden. I think Putin would look at his relationship with China and say that was net gain for him in relation to his handling of of Ukraine. So I think the short answer is not much. And that, of course, is very, very depressing. But the other thing, Rory, is that the reason why I'm glad we've talked about his two successive dates, you know, people used to talk about the CNN factor in global diplomacy, that issues which fell off the news radar, suddenly governments felt less pressure to maintain a stance and a position and at least addressing a problem. And I'm afraid, I think, for all the horrors that are happening uh, in Iran at the moment, it's kind of dropped off the radar. And while it drops off the radar, governments feel less pressure. Well, there's there's, there's this general fatigue point, isn't there, which is horrifying. But I'm afraid the truth is that it's, I, I mean, I find this at the moment trying to get people to focus on giving money to end extreme poverty, which was something that in the 90s was very, very central. Remember, there was the Millennium Development Goals, Sustainable Development Goals, we were going to end global extreme poverty. And now just sort of people wince away when I put out a little tweet on it, 90% of the responses will be, we've got enough to worry about at home, we shouldn't be worrying Mm. about poor people abroad. And that extends to everything. But that's a a product of nationalism, isn't it? That's a product of people thinking that actually it's all about looking inside to our own affairs. Here's one, Rory, from Becky Kanreuter. Oh, yes. What is stopping the government from being honest with the public about the financial impact of Brexit? What is also preventing the Labour Party from doing the same? It feels criminal when some solutions to our financial woes can be found there. So what's your answer to that? Well, I, I guess we sort of, I guess we sort of <laughs> know the answer because it's, it's the same, presumably, for Keir Starmer as it is for Rishi Sunak. In both cases, Labour and Conservative calculate that a very important chunk of their voters, they're, they're particularly fighting over these floating voters, the Red Wall voters up in former Labour seats in Northern England are pro-Brexit voters, and they think that nothing would anger them more than saying that Brexit was responsible for all of the flaws. That would remind them of what they saw as Project Fear in 2016, 2017. And it's, and it's interesting that Keir Starmer, I mean, you know, Rishi was a Brexiteer, Keir Starmer wasn't, mm. but even Keir Starmer's mm. not prepared to do this. And, and that's, you know, I think that the, the Becky's question makes that observation. I mean, I, I, I was in the so-called Red Wall uh, at the weekend watching Burnley's wonderful hammering of Blackburn Rovers. <laughs> and I can't pretend that I went around doing focus groups, but this idea that places like Burnley and Blackburn are monolithically full of people who are saying, if you dare mess around with my Brexit, the voices I hear there and elsewhere are, if there's a problem, and you know that problem is damaging our standard of living and damaging our economy. You can't fix the problem until you've admitted the problem. And that's where we are with this. I mean, Hunt will do his statement on Thursday, okay? And even Hunt, who, like you, like me, like Keir Starmer, voted Remain, Hunt all over the airwaves at the weekend saying, you know, Brexit's not doing any damage to the economy. He knows that's a complete fantasy. We're talking about 4% taken out of the economy year on year on year on year, minimum. I, I agree. I'm absolutely with you. I think that it has done a lot of damage. I think that it wasn't even necessarily a binary choice between staying or leaving, although we would have done better economically to simply remain. But I also think that a form of customs union Brexit, which Theresa May was trying to push mm. with a much closer relationship to the European Union, would have been much, much less damaging economically, would have reassured mm. manufacturers, markets, farmers much more. And it's been made cruelly worse by things like the catastrophic Australia free trade deal, which I'm very pleased to see George Eustace, who was the former Environment Secretary, Farming Secretary, who wasn't He, he might have to- said it when he was in the cabinet, Rory. He might have said it when he was part of the negotiations. 
he he did, I think, actually, to to be fair to the poor man, I think he was horrified by it and argued very strongly against it then. Well, he should have resigned. He should have resigned. I mean, I don't have that much respect for somebody who comes out and says, the deal that I was prepared to stand by, the deal that I was prepared to support in Cabinet, now that I've left the Cabinet, I can tell you it was a terrible deal for Britain. Well, I guess the question for all these people, and I have some sympathy about this, but the question is, what is the issue over which you resign? So you're in the cabinet and you choose your issue. In my case, I resigned over the bigger issue of Boris Johnson becoming prime minister mm. and not wanting him to push ahead with this no-deal Brexit. It's quite a big deal. If you're the guy whose department is in charge of farmers and you are now saying the deal that we did with Australia was a terrible deal for the people I represented, I don't have much respect for that. It's difficult, isn't it? You can see how people talk themselves around. I mean, look, I, I'm not trying to defend it, but you can imagine him having a conversation with his family and saying, well, yeah, but I if do. I go, no, it's going to be even worse. I can see that. I can see that. Well, Gillian Keegan. Oh, yes. Yeah, my friend Gillian Keegan. Great fan of Gillian Keegan's, yeah. Right. Your friend Gillian Keegan, who, who yeah. I know you are. Well, yeah. I'm afraid, Rory, that quite a few of our listeners are not as enamoured. Kieran Cox is Rory Stewart pleased with the way Gillian Keegan has started? I had very high hopes after his comments about her. I have been extremely underwhelmed after seeing her on the media. Marianne McGee, I'd like to hear Rory's reaction to Gillian Keegan's appalling remarks about nurses and food banks and breakdown boilers after he said he rated her and would like to see her in the cabinet. Now, in case you don't know, Rory, that's about an interview that she was doing with Kay Burley. With Cable, yeah, I, I watched it quite carefully because I've seen, yeah. seen all this stuff on on Twitter. <laughs> so, um, for for people who haven't watched the Kay Burley clip, you can, you can see it by typing Kay Burley, Gillian Keegan in. Kay Burley asked Gillian, who's now the Secretary of State for Education, whether she clapped for nurses, and she said, "Yep, she she clapped for nurses." And then she's asked whether she thinks nurses should get a pay rise, uh, and then she's asked what she thinks about nurses going to food banks. And Gillian Keegan says, uh, firstly, she says, look, it's very difficult not to feel that nurses and doctors deserve pay rises. They do incredible heroic work. But she says there are over a million people in the NHS. And uh, we also have to think about pay for carers and others. And I guess that's something I'd be interested in you as somebody who specializes in government and comms what is she really supposed to say? Because she does not have the authority as the education secretary. It's very important to understand this, I think, cabinet responsibility. Mm. How angry you would have been if your education secretary had gone out oh, yeah. unscripted on Kay Burley and said, nurses need a pay rise. Yeah, but hold on, Ray. You're, you're up to the point where she talked about respecting the nurses and the doctors. You kind of have to say that. I think a cabinet ministry went up and said, I don't respect nurses and doctors. No, 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 no. no, The big thing I was pushing out, sorry, is you wouldn't have wanted an education secretary saying they deserve a pay rise when she's not the health secretary and you're dealing with inflation. No, No. agreed. So she has to give the kind of general line on that. But she then went on to say that in her experience, when she's been visiting food banks, and the question was about nurses visiting food banks, it's usually it's about people who've got a broken down boiler or their relationship has broken down. It was just a weird, weird thing to say. It's a strange phrase, isn't it? So, so, so yeah. So, so what? What? I, I, let me continue my defence. So, what she says there is, the average salary of nurses is about thirty-three thousand pounds a year, which is not anything close to the minimum wage in Britain. So, what she's answering is the question: Why would somebody on an average income of thirty-three thousand pounds a year be going to a food bank? And food banks are very, very different, different parts of the country, many different reasons why people go to food banks. And I went through this again and again, as you can imagine, as a conservative MP, this is the standard question from 
many interviewers, many constituents, what's happening with food banks. Mm. The answer, certainly when I was an MP, is that the reason why most of the people are going to food banks is a temporary problem in their life. It's not fundamentally that their salary or in many cases benefits are inadequate, particularly with benefits that that are very, very bad breaks between people's benefits. Month delays where people are not getting the support they should, and that's the government's fault and they should be sorting that out. But I also think it is probably true that if you're on an income of £33,000, then the reason you'd go to a food bank is because of some unexpected crisis or catastrophe in your family. Mm. Well, I thought it came across as being deeply lacking in political guile, skills and empathy. How, how would you have answered? Well, probably I, yeah, much closer to how you just did. No, I think you just said, look, I visited food banks. I talked to people who visit food banks and there were all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds. But you wouldn't say, I mean, what she was basically saying, she, she was opening the door for her critics to say that she was disrespecting nurses. And I think that that was just a, a silly thing to say. So I guess I'd say I wouldn't have said that. I would. Have, I think making the framing argument about nurses and about the respected and there are processes, that's all fine, even if it's a bit kind of political waffly. But I think you then go on to say, I'm not going to comment on every single person who visits every single food bank. I am saying, and you go back to your main point. I don't yeah. think it was, I just think she was very, very loose with language. Now, Alistair, anything on that, we're supposed to go to a break. and Let's get back again soon. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. Got his big question from Epu McConnell. It's quite a, quite a big question. Maybe it's unfair to throw it at you because it's, it's an eight billion uh, question. So cheekily repeating my question because Tuesday is eight billion. I think what he means is the world population hits eight billion on Tuesday. 
Mm. How do you think China is preparing for its population to probably half in size during this century? Also, why do you think overall preparation for global aging is still such a blind spot? It will transform societies completely. So this is a really interesting thing. Obviously, I mean, Japan's getting very old. Uh, Africa, on the other hand, one in 10 children born in the world will be born in Nigeria by 2050. And then places like Mali, average family size is seven. And on the other hand, in many European and developed countries, uh, and including in China, because of their one-child policy, populations are about to crash, which will mean that you'll have... Well, here's, here's a little stat just before I turn to you for your answer. I believe when Lloyd George introduced the old age pension in Britain, there was something like 12 working people for every retired person. And today mm. there are about two and a half working people for every retired person, and it's going to drop down to two. Well, I read some guy called Thomas Sabotka, who is from the, the Vienna, because I saw Elon Musk. I hate talking about Elon Musk because he just likes us to talk about him. But Musk is on record as saying population collapse due to low birth rate is now a bigger risk to civilization than global warming, which is quite a big statement. This thing about halving, halving of Chinese population, is that remotely right? Yeah, I think pr- probably, probably is true because the one-child policy basically made, yeah, one-child policy was very, very strictly enforced. So uh, parents had one child and in many yeah. cases, very sadly, that became a male child because people found yeah. ways of getting rid of female children. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would have thought that's probably right. Okay. Well, the Thomas Sabotka at the Vienna Institute of Demography says, even the most pessimistic projections put world population in 2100 at around 8.8 billion. Which is higher than it is today. Which is higher than it is today, but it is not the explosion that we're talking about. So we've grown from a billion in 1800 to 7.9 billion in 2020, okay? And as our questioner points out, eight by Tuesday. Right. So that is then going to carry on rising, but at a much slower rate. Now, are are we, (laughs) I guess what you're asking, Rory, is how bad does the state of the world have to become before it becomes politically acceptable to start talking about diminishing our global population? Is that what you're asking me? Well, I think it's actually very, I mean, it's very interesting. So I've generally been on the side that population is a bit, is, is damaging and damaging for the environment and that we can't sustain the levels of population growth that we have. And I've been actually quite impressed by how well Japan has dealt with the declining aging population. But it's certainly true that there are many people out there who do argue that this is very, very difficult and dangerous for our economies. Because the point I was trying to make, I guess, about the young people supporting the old people is that you end up with a very few working people producing all the taxes, paying for an enormous number of retired people with very expensive medical needs. Uh, And that puts more and more of a burden on future generations. And that's where I think you have to hope robotics and AI are going to come in. Mm. But are they going to make us live shorter or longer lives? They're going to make us live longer lives, adding to the burden, adding to the problem. Um, How many of us today are going to live to a, a hundred? Back when you know when you and I were growing up, reaching a hundred was like a huge thing. It's now it's not commonplace, but it's it's kind of it's not a massive event every time. Does that mean I'm going to have another fifty years of this podcast to go? Well, that would mean that I'd be 115, which I think is <laughs> I think is probably pushing it. You're going to have to get another partner, Rory, at some point. But you oh, know that's yeah. just well, maybe, maybe, maybe I have to go to the next generation of Campbells. So am I going to sign up with Grace or Rory? You could do Rory and Rory. You could do Rory yeah. and Callum. Um, But we did have one question, actually, Roy, that said, if we didn't do this podcast with each other, 
who would we like to do it with? Yours has to be Labour and mine has to be Tory. You first. Ooh, blimey. Gosh. God, that's a really difficult question because it's got to be somebody who's got, where there's enough disagreement. I mean, I couldn't do it with someone like Tristram Hunt because I'd just be agreeing with him all the time. I need a bit, <laughs> bit, 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 of, bit, of, bit of edge to the whole thing. Somebody keep me on my toes. Somebody mock me. What about your friend Stephen Kinnock? Steve, well, but he, he and I agree too much. How about the deputy okay. Labour leader? That could be the answer, couldn't it? You and Angela? Angela, yeah. That'd be good. That would be good. That'd yeah, be good, that's good. You know, who, who would you choose as your Tory? Well, I think I quite liked a natural way with Ken Clark. Yeah, that'd be good. He's yeah, even yeah. older than, yeah. than I am. Um, yeah, I think I'd go for Ken Clark. You need a bit more friction. I think you and Ken might agree too much. Yeah, okay. I'll maybe go, I'll tell you what, I might go for Johnny Mercer, actually. You and Johnny Mercer, that could be the one, couldn't it? We do disagree. We do, we do disagree about quite a lot. You know, I think a better show, though, I'm, I'm with you that you want to do Johnny Mercer, but I think a better show is you and George Osborne right now. Here we are, or you and Michael Gove. Here we are. I've got Johnny Sells, hand luggage only for weeks on end, wearing suits. I mean, mm. how? Hand washing every night in the sink, plus laptops books, and then Emma Glettel. And hand luggage is more difficult for women who need to carry their makeup and wear it to be deemed properly groomed. Hand luggage is then difficult with the restrictions on liquid. So what do you say about all that? Mm. Well, first of all, about a suit. Okay. The maximum number of suits you ever need to take to any other country is two. You take them in a suit carrier. Okay. Very good. So you have a suit carrier, which you clip over your moderately sized wheelie bag, and you get on the plane You smile nicely at the steward or stewardess and you say, do you have a place to hang a suit? And nine times out of 10, they do. So they hang your suit for you. Then you put your thing. Now, the thing about women and makeup and all that. Now, I take all my... (laughs) All your makeup. I I take it all, all my overnight stuff, in one of those plastic bags that you get to go through security. It's all in there. Now, yeah. if you need more than that, in my view, you're worrying far too much about how you look. So that's all you need. Don't, so don't take anything that you can't fit into one of the plastic bags, and that becomes your overnight makeup bag, ladies. Very good. And then the thing about books, buy books. I'm sorry this may sound, you know, a bit kind of, you know, well, where, what about the cost of living crisis? But I believe in buying books. You take one on the plane. If you need another one when you land, you buy it on arrival. Support local authors, support local bookshops. And here's, here's, here's my answer on this one, which is I am the world's biggest Kindle fan. And I used to travel with 12 books in my bag. I now travel with a single slim Kindle. Mm. And I've got the latest Kindle, which has got an incredible battery. And I mm. think I have at the moment two and a half thousand books on it. So wow. I'm never short of a book. How many of those are you rereading, Rory? Exactly. Every single one. <laughs> I had this amazingly, slightly charming, slightly fraudulent Scottish dean at my college in Oxford who had a lot of books on the shelves. And I said to him, my goodness, you know, have, have you read all those books? And he said, some of them twice, which sort of avoided <laughs> the question I thought quite now, listen, Rory, I'm going to say something moderately supportive of a conservative minister, even oh, though yes. I don't support him much in what he does yeah. at education. But um, your friend, Nick Gibb. Oh, yes. Who, who incidentally, incidentally, on all the notes that they took for the formation of the new ministerial thing, they also listened to us on that. Remember, I was pitching him to get back into his position. <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> so good old Rishi. We, we, we need to think about things to tell Rishi. Um, so... We got lots of questions this week about languages, foreign languages. And Nick Gibb, I see, put out a, a thing saying that he thinks that there should be more learning of German. Well, I totally support that. And the numbers now doing German A-level are so small, it's kind of 
embarrassing. So lots of questions. Here's one from Martin Caldwell. I live in Berlin. I speak German. How do we change the culture in the UK to value learning a language? Freya Goldschmidt, as an ex-head of languages at state school, I think we need to reform the teaching of languages. It's just not working. Beth, I remember you saying, that's me, your father was a Scots Gaelic speaker. Can't remember if Rory's family were. I don't think so. My grandfather was Welsh monoglot until middle school. With education being so topical, how do you feel about mandatory Gaelic and Welsh being taught in schools there? Uh, and then a f- final one, Dennis Richards, former head, French teacher. Please ask Alice to explain Braverman's views, given that she lived in France for two years on the Erasmus program, then wrecked the opportunity for my students. What do you think happened? What happened, Dennis, is the old story about climbing the ladder and pulling it away. Uh, uh, um, yeah, just stats on languages quickly. So across the UK, German was taken by 36,000 teenagers at GCSE, down from 58,000 in 2012. And by only... Less than 2,000 state school students took it at fewer, A-level. Fewer, 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 fewer sorry. Fewer. 800 yeah. private schools. So that's only 2,800 people. I mean, it's a tiny it's number terrible. speaking. And of terrible. course, you've got, you'd presumably say that to actually have any hope of speaking decent German, you need to do at least state level, if not a degree. But that's only 2,000 people in the whole country who are speaking mm. even moderate German a year. And I do think, even though English is recognized as kind of your you know, the language of the world in so many ways. It's not always going to be like that. Where I would disagree with Nick Gibb, though, I don't know whether he broadened it. I remember when I was growing up, my mum saying, oh, we're going to the common market, you should learn languages and all that. And I kind of you do listen that. To I've always loved Well, I didn't. I've always loved learning languages. But I, I think today I would be learning Chinese and Arabic. I think they're the languages that we should be we should be focusing on. But at the same time, there is such a value in learning another language, regardless this idea that you only do things so you then go and do jobs where you use them. It's such a good thing, per se, to learn a foreign language, to go through the process of learning, to enjoy a different language, to enjoy the cultures of different country. And I think it's sad that we've just allowed that to, to fall off. And I don't criticize the Labour government that much, as you know, Rory, but I do think that we made a mistake in in downgrading the significance of languages within our education system. Well, the Chinese Chinese is something that the Scots have made a real effort to invest in. And actually, my, my father spoke very good Chinese and uh, as an old man in his 80s, was allowed to teach Chinese a little bit in Scottish schools. But although Scotland's had a huge decline, like England and the number of people doing language hires, there's been a big increase in the number of people who are doing Mandarin. And I think that's a, yeah. it's a smart investment. Yeah, yeah. Now, Rory, we are now getting so many questions because we get them on Twitter, we get them on Instagram, we get them on email. I now, when I'm going through the questions, and I have a special category which I put under the headline, people accusing us of ignoring things. I'd just like to say to those people, we are getting well over a thousand questions every single week. Not answering your question does not mean that we disrespect you or that we're ignoring things. It's just that we can't get through them all. But here's one criticizing us for things we don't talk about. Ash Cartman, you still haven't talked about local government. Is that because you both find it boring and not as sexy as talking about international affairs? To most people in the UK, it matters much more than what's happening halfway around the world. So I think we have talked about local government, sort of, but not maybe saying now let's talk about local government. We do talk about local. Well, and, and another question I think from Julie Hudson on on the same thing. Um, well, let, let's let's maybe finish on that. If that's right, because I think we come towards the end. And I think I, I'd say on my start before I hand back to you that it is very striking how much local government matters to people, but also how little people know about their local representatives. I mean, I was struck that people can often name their MP, but struggle to name local councillors, local mayors. 
And that's very frustrating because often the things that mattered when I was a constituency MP, people wanted to talk to me about very local issues, could be even parking, planning, things that I actually, as a member of parliament, had no control over. They were run by the district or the county council. But they didn't vote in local elections, didn't know the names of their district and county councillors. And we had this very sad thing in Bristol, which is that they just voted to get rid of a mayor who I thought was doing quite mm. a good job. Yeah, so, he was terrific. Yeah. So I, I think it's it's very sad that Britain seems to have this allergy towards local. Mm. I, I'd like to be like the French, where you have a, a mayor in each small village and town who you can meet in the supermarket, poke in the chest and hold accountable for mm. what's happening. Anyway, over to you. Mm. No, I, I, I think the other thing that's related to that is the um, the downgrading of local journalism as well. That local papers really, really struggle now, and I, you know, part of that's again it's people's habits of going online or of, you know, dare I say, listening to podcasts rather than getting their local paper, whatever it might be. I mean, I guess the other thing I'd say, Ash, is that if we were to focus, so we've got the, the Jeremy Hunt statement coming up. I bet there will be, my hunch is that amongst the kind of book balancing that he's trying to do, we're going to see rises in council tax. Councils, I think, get an awful lot of criticism. Some of it deserved. A lot of it, I think people underestimate the extent to which councils are dependent upon national government. And therefore, that explains maybe it's another reason why we do focus more on national government. And also, Ash, I think you know that both Rory and I have got a shared interest in in foreign policy and foreign affairs, and also a shared belief that our media doesn't focus enough on it. So that may, might explain as well. I'm going to give a shout out to my local representative and tell you, you'll enjoy this, Rory. It's an event I attended yesterday, um, hosted by Georgia Gould, who is the leader of, yes, of course, Camden Council. Ph- Philip Gould's daughter. Philip Gould's daughter. Yeah. And she was presiding over the renaming of a, an area close to where I live on the edge of Hampstead Heath. And if you go to South End Green now, you go round this roundabout and you'll see on the roundabout, it is now called Boris Nemtsov Square. And oh, uh, Boris right. Nemtsov Place. And it's at the bottom of the hill going up to the Russian trade delegation where lots of diplomats and spooks and assorted Putin supporters live, and not to mention the oligarchs who live up the top as well. And what was extraordinary about it? There was the Evgenia Karamurza. Very quickly, just to remind people, Boris Nemtsov was the dissident leader in Russia who was assassinated on the on the bolshoi Moskvaryetsky bridge in 2015 yeah. by agents of yeah. Vladimir Putin. Yeah, and who was one of the? I, I actually met him way back with Tony Blair when he was he and Chibias, the uh, Nemtsov and Chibias were the two sort of great reformers. So he's now dead. There was a message read out from his daughter. There was the wife of a, a guy who's been doing much the same sort of work and who's been poisoned twice. Who went back to Russia. He's now in a gulag somewhere. Um, and while this was going on and lots of people there, your friend Stephen Kinnock was there and Tom Brake from the Lib Dems and there was a shout out for that guy, Mark Pritchard, the Tories. It was a kind of all, all party thing. And there were these local protesters from Hampstead and Highgate with vuvuzelas, <laughs> which they hooted throughout all of the speeches, including this woman, Evgenia, talking about her husband languishing in jail, having survived these poisoning attempts and so forth. And they were waving banners saying, you know, we demand more democracy. And the democracy they were complaining about was they didn't like the fact that Camden Council hadn't 
gone with their view on the consultation about whether to rename this Boris Nemtsov oh, Square. And I mean, it was just the, like, it was the parallel universe <laughs> that was going on there was extraordinary. In fact, there was a woman who came up to me and said, oh, you're here for the virtue signaling, are you? Well, I am 100% behind things like that. I think at a time when, you know, we sometimes feel powerless at what's happening in Ukraine, sometimes these symbolic things and these gestures of support. And I'll tell you the thing that really brought it home to me, Rory, you love this. Guess who came up to me and said in a very Russian accent, I'd really enjoy your podcast. Who? Don. Marina Litvinenko. Gosh, goodness. So there you go. Amazing. Right. Well, let's, let's finish on that. And lovely to talk to you. And let's talk next week. All the best. Bye-bye.